0: We are going to start off this morning in chapter one of Genesis, because our memory verse is Genesis 1-1. Before we get there, Elia, the first little blank slide there is a video. If you want to fire that off, we're going to watch a short little video this morning.
1: Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty, formless, and dark. But the Spirit of God was there on the first day. God said, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. On the second day, God said, let there be a space to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. God called the space sky. On the third day, God said, Let the waters beneath the sky grow together into one place so dry ground may appear. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land sprout with every sort of plant and tree. And God saw that it was good. On the fourth day, God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. God made two great lights, the sun for the day and the moon for the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, and God saw that it was good. On the fifth day, God said, Let the waters swarm with fish and other light. be filled with birds of every kind and God saw that it was good on the sixth day God said let the earth make every sort of animal
0: God made all sorts of wild animals
1: livestock and small animals each able to have babies of the same kind and God saw that it was good then God said let us make man in our image to be like us, so God created man in His own image. He formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man, and man became alive. Then he saw that the man needed a helper, so God put man into a deep sleep. And while he slept, God took one of the man's ribs. Then God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. Hello. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food, and I have given you every green plant as food for all the animals. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. So the creation of the heavens and the earth, and everything in them, was done. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and said it was holy. All
0: right. So the first question I have is for my kiddos, and sorry, it's just my kiddos this morning. So, put you on the spot a little bit. How many times do you think you've heard that story? A bunch. How many's a bunch? 7.1. At least. Probably more than that. Right. So, right. So we've heard that story a lot, right? How many of you, when you were growing up in like Sunday school, Bible school, different things, heard that story a bunch, right? How many of you feel like that story sounds pretty accurate, pretty spot on? Yeah? Generally sound pretty good? All right. That's the funny thing is like, sometimes I feel like, and we've discussed this before, that a story, specific ones in general, ones that generally become pretty easy to communicate on a Sunday morning to little kids. We present that often to them. And then the way we talk about it together just depends sometimes on what we're trying to talk about or what we're going back to. And you all know I love Genesis and love going back there quite a bit. But as I wrestled through this, this is the story that's oftentimes in my head about how things went and how things went along. But did you know that technically that is a combination of two creation story accounts that exist in Scripture? Did you know that there were actually two? There's actually this whole big picture of chapter one that's being presented, right? And as chapter one's being presented, we get this kind of timeline. It's written very much like a poem, it's got a poetic. Um, kind of rhythm and and the way it 's written is meant to capture your memory, so you know already Genesis one is trying to help you memorize and help you hold on to this idea, the way it goes back with and then God did this and then it, the, then there was this day and then it was good, right, ultimately leading up to this end of chapter one where God says it 's very good because every he looks back at everything he 's made and he says it 's all very good, right. And so the way Genesis chapter 1 is written this is this beautiful poetic language that has a rhythm, has kind of this ongoing um, kind of set of uh, pace to it. And it's got this timeline that's spelled out clearly with these days, and it starts with nothingness and ends with humanity. And we'll talk about chapter 2 in this kind of different picture that's painted in a second. But before we go there, I want to kind of talk just a little bit about chapter 1. This is where I need my kiddos' help here again here in just a second, okay? Chapter 1 starts off like this. Ellie, go ahead and throw that next slide. Beautiful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? There's your memory verse. But verse 2 here. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This picture of nothingness. What's the kind of stuff that just floats through your head when you think about this imagery right here? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there's this interesting thing I want us to point out before we get too far, right here in Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and throw that next slide up there, Ellie, and this is where I need some help, kiddos. You ready? You need to help them, because I know this is tough, right? You do this kind of stuff in school, so they need a little help, right? (laughs) Cool. We good? All right. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. The word deep there is actually, the Hebrew word is tahom. Can you say tahom? Tahom. Everybody else? Silas, where are you at? Oh, he left. Never mind. He disappeared. To home Everybody say it with me one more time. To home Okay. That word is this fun Hebrew word that doesn't look like this. That's the way that you can see it so we can actually pronounce it together. It's got a lot of other little... In Hebrew, it's just kind of scribbles and we wouldn't know what to say, right? But this is kind of how we can spell it out so you can see it. And that's this word that we have here for the deep. That's really a reference to these waters. But the interesting thing and the difference is this word for waters that are here, the over the face of the deep, has got darkness over it, right? But this word is the same kind of word that would be used kind of when we were talking about a flood. Nora, sorry to put you on the spot. You're still in the room. Ellie you can help you. If we put a plant, we had a plant, right, and we stuck it under a big vase of water or in a pool, what would happen to the plant? It would drown, I thought water was good for plants. Well, yeah, but plant, can have so much water. plant can only have so much water and then it would not get the oxygen it needs, not have the light it needs, it would absorb too much. Sometimes a good thing can become a bad thing, right? That's kind of what this word to home infers. This is kind of the salty deep. This word has kind of some different meanings, but it's kind of the the type of waters that are that salty, deep, suffocating, life-taking kind of waters, not the life-giving kind of waters. Now, if we go into this very next part of chapter or verse 2, it says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, the... Mahim. That, that one's tougher to say, so we're going to try it together. Mahim. There, there's, there's a couple different ways I heard that pronounced, and I'm honestly still not sure. I don't speak Hebrew too good. But in, there's usually like a lot of phlegm and <sighs> kind of sounds going on. So I assume that there's something in that ballpark. But these kind of waters are these life-giving waters, the kind of waters that would help something to grow and produce life. And so you'll notice that the darkness was hovering over the Tahom. But here we have the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. There's this picture that's beginning to form here of this. Uh, another way that I've seen it translated and heard people talk about the home is the chaos waters. This chaotic, unstructured, unformed nothingness that is darkness, and void of light. But what's the very next verse that happens here? Does anybody know what verse three is without looking? It's not on the screen. No help today. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You remember the darkness was hovering over the chaos, over the destruction, over the death, over the salty depths that would take life. The darkness was there. And God says, let there be light. And there was light. And it separated. He separated the light from the darkness. This imagery that begins is funny because we don't get to sun and moon and stars until day four of this story, right? That's when he puts these things in the sky that we know to be the sources of light as we know it. The reason we can see the steps and the flowers out there right now is because the sun is in the sky and its light has traveled eight minutes to get here. And is now bathing the ground in illumination and giving us the ability to see and reflecting colors and all the things we know back to us. And there's this beautiful idea, but in this moment, there's a separation of the day or the light from the darkness. And God is all of a sudden in His Spirit providing something that is separate, and He's taking the chaos and the darkness and the disorder and all the ugh of nothingness. And beginning to work with this beautiful tapestry because his spirit is hovering over and not seeing just the destruction and the depth, but his spirit is giving life to something something that was nothingness, something that would suffocate life, the darkness that would only be void and nothingness, darkness and being lost. And God is forming it into something that is beautiful. God is forming it into something that gives life. And so we have this picture of God continuing to create. He speaks and let there be light. He speaks and the waters are separated. He speaks and dry ground appears. He speaks and the sun and the moon and the stars appear. He speaks and plants and vegetation grow up on the land. He speaks and birds and fish and animals. And the next thing you know, He speaks into existence in this on the sixth day, mankind. And that's where we kind of see the end of chapter 1 take place. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, "...be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the ground." and there was morning the sixth day. That repetitive line that continues to come up, right? There was evening, and there was morning. And So here's this first narrative, right? This is this... Presentation of everything that was created and God is speaking. There's tangible timeline. It ends with this culmination of humanity that is now given dominion over this creation. God took the chaos and the disorder and the nothingness, the voidness of life, the deep, salty depths of the chaos waters, and has used it as this beautiful palette to begin creation. And has built up to this moment where He says, I've filled it with plants, I've filled it with animals, I've done all these things... And now I'm putting man here to subdue, have dominion over, and to rule over. Now, we'll talk about this more a little bit next week, but this idea that God has placed us here, not to sit back and enjoy paradise. God gives Adam and Eve tasks, jobs, work to do to have dominion over, to subdue, to multiply, to fill the earth, to start filling this place and taming the wilderness. We've talked about that idea of the wilderness where the people of Israel roamed in the wilderness for 40 years. We've talked about Jesus going out into the wilderness. The same kind of imagery and kind of thought is being used here in this creation story that this garden, this place that he has made, which we haven't even talked about the garden yet, by the way. It's not in chapter 1. I don't know if you know that or not. There's no garden really referenced in that way that we talk about it there. That'll come here in a second. This Place is kind of wild. It's still not tamed. It's still not subdued. God has given man the task to do that. And so he's continuing this process on. And chapter two kind of begins with the seventh day, right? It finishes up this first narrative through verses one and three. We'll come back to that in a minute. But in verse four of chapter two, I think that's up there, Ellie. Yeah, There we go. This is how this next part of chapter two begins. Because remember, I said there are two narratives. So read this carefully these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the lord god made the earth and the heavens so it's kind of like this new introduction to a creation story He's like these talking about what's coming next are the generations of the creation of what's coming story number two i know it's kind of weird because i've never really thought about it that way a lot myself either i mean i have but i haven't there's two narratives that are kind of working side by side here. And it doesn't mean they're in opposition of each other. But what is the author trying to help us understand? What are we supposed to see and grasp when we wrestle through what God wants us to know about creation and why we're here in the first place? Because that's ultimately the question, right? Anytime we tell a story, we begin to talk about things, we say something along the lines of, uh, like if I say, Hey, tell me all about yourself. You might start the story by saying, well, I'm from this place. I was born here. This is where I was raised. Because you go back to the beginning to try to explain who you are. And for us, the story of who God is, what God wants from us, why are we here, what's going on is being told in this moment. And so there's something to be gained from all of this. And as we wrestle with this question, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It kind of goes on from here. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Listen carefully. Did you catch that? When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. See, whereas the first creation story kind of builds and kind of keeps saying God spoke and this existed, God spoke and this came along, now we're getting this new account, this new start of a story that kind of begins with this desert, this barrenness with no water, no life. Kind of similar to the last one, right? This chaos water, no life. But here we have this dusty ground. This ground that has no plants or bush. There's no rain. There's nothing. But there's just this mist going up. That word mist can be translated different ways. In some places, it's actually like a spring of water, a trickling it's not necessarily clear, but mist is sometimes maybe like misleading because we think of like the spray setting on our hose or what you see in the produce section, right? Kind of coming down over your produce before you buy it. But this idea of this trickling that's coming up through here is this source of life. Again, barrenness, void of life, mist trickling in, offering waters of life. Ellie, did I have one more slide up there? Yes, good. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now this is interesting. because This is one of those things that's not easy to pick up on. I had not heard someone talk about this before. I was doing some studying this week. I came across some people discussing this idea that the way the Hebrew language works, there's sometimes this use of the word and... And then another word next to it. And what that kind of means is the reader would understand and know. It's kind of like parentheses without parentheses. That what I'm about to say next is not necessarily a continuation of the story I was just telling. It's just extra information I need you to know and get. And that's what happens here. That's why you see this is italicized from here. Because what happened was we had this dusty ground that God is working with. And the Lord formed the man from the dust and the ground, and breathed into his nostrils breath and life. The first account, man was at the end. But in this chapter 2 telling, there's no bushes, no trees, no life, no plants, nothing to work the ground, and God forms the dust. He doesn't speak the dust. He gets in and forms the dust into man and then breathes his breath, his life, his spirit, this source of living water, living breath, into the man who now has life. And then there's this interesting little side thing, because if you read, it says, "And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east." and there He put the man who he had formed." This little parentheses section, I heard somebody ask in the midst of this conversation, well why don't they put parentheses in some of our translations like this?" And he goes, "Well, this one would be a big parenthesis because it goes on through chapter 17. The continuation of these parentheses cover this spring of water that comes from this garden that was placed here this life-giving, flowing place out of this central space where God has created, this garden that is pouring out life, this perfect place of paradise that this water is pouring out of. And then it talks about these different rivers. And I've always heard people say, well, maybe Eden is over here because this is where the rivers are and this is where the rivers are. And there's really a lot of this imagery that's being presented by the author here that this river is near this area, and it really kind of represents this group of people. Because out of this space, out of this creation, out of this moment, God is going to continue to pour His life into this culture and this people group, and this culture and this people group. And if you look at the history and all the things that are going on there with these rivers, it really is God pointing back to these people who will be impacted and influenced by God's people and what He continues to do through them throughout the course of the rest of this book. Imagery that we start to connect the dots and start looking. And if we pay attention to some of the imagery of water, some of the imagery of trees that are placed in the center of the garden, these trees that are part of these stories and the central pieces of these stories, and we start to look at how all this progresses forward, Eden and creation language of life-giving water, of these trees that turn and purify and cleanse or provide life, like the tree of life that's in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... These centerpieces of imagery continue on all throughout this book in so many different ways and so many different points in the history of God's people. And we look at this next story. It kind of continues on, this Genesis account of chapter 2. It continues on with God you know, t- talking about this place and where they're at. And then in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. This is where he falls out causes Adam to fall into a sleep here after he's named all the animals, because again, God has given Adam work to do. He names all the animals, and then he says, no suitable helper was found. He causes him to fall into a deep sleep. He creates woman, and the two of them are naked and unashamed, is how Genesis chapter 2 wraps up. And then chapter 3 we'll get into later. That's where we dive into this account of the fall, right? Now we look at all that and there's just a lot of cool, interesting stuff. I could go on for hours because I listened to hours and read for a ton of cool stuff on all the different imagery and the different ideas that are being presented in these two accounts and the contrast between these two accounts that don't contradict each other. They are presented in different ways. Remember how I said chapter one was poetry? Chapter two has a lot more like prose and puns. There's alliteration, like words that sound a lot alike, dirt and man. And like, like these things that, are, like the, even the name for Adam and the Immah, like there's these different Hebrew words that sound so much alike. It's like a play on words that we miss out on because, again, we don't speak the language of the culture. We don't understand some of the imagery. We don't understand a lot of the other culture's background and perception of what it meant for the earth to come into existence. Because there's so many different references throughout the course of those two chapters that kind of make a nod to other cultures' understanding of where the earth came from. Many would say that out of matter and out of this chaos, God came into being through all the chaos of this matter. Some cultures would say that God had to fight his way through this chaos and through this matter and had to reign supreme above it by fighting his way through it. And these different cosmologies of where we came from are in contradiction to this idea that there was nothingness and chaos And God took it and spoke order and life into it. God formed with his own hands order and life into it. What are some of the things we're supposed to understand? Nora, what's the very first verse? Silas, what's the very first verse? Do you remember? In the beginning, God created, right? What's the first takeaway? We can get caught in the weeds all day long about all these different imageries, all these different ideas. Was it six literal days? Was it not six literal days? We can get stuck debating so many different things and miss some of the key points of what Scripture actually wants us to understand. One of the first and most important is right there in the first two lines. In the beginning, before anything else existed, before anything else started, before our time as we know it and understand it was, God... Created, right? How is not the emphasis of the story. The reality is God's word spoke and it was. How that all actually physically manifested once prompted by God's, phys- like God's word and God's power being spoken into it, we don't know. And there's not chapter upon chapter upon chapter of detail. Do you know how many chapters? of detail there are for the construction of the temple and the tabernacle? Like, details, bunches. That's where you all usually stop reading, right? You get on that year-long reading plan, and you're like, yeah, I know, there's lampstands, and they're gold, and how much longer are we going to have to read through this, right? It's kind of one of those parts that's hard to get through when we're doing some sort of reading plan, because some of us don't find it as fascinating as others, and I get that. But God didn't spend time and time and time trying to help us understand the details because he wasn't trying to lead us to focus on that. He's trying to help us see the important pieces God spoke and created. God, with his hands, formed and created. And out of chaos and nothingness, out of darkness and nothingness, he formed and saw a canvas and a palette to work with and formed life and breathed his life into this world. Now, the other side of this is, if we look, this story ends with this culmination of humanity. Of all creation, humanity is created in God's image. It's different and set apart because we were actually made in God's image. What do we need to understand about the beginning Is God created? What do we need to understand about our beginning? We were created in God's image and special to Him, important to Him, part of His plan. He gave dominion and rule to us and said, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue. God's original creation and design culminated in this creation that was designed in his own image and given dominion and rule and said, take this and go. And so chapter two is not just starting with humanity because chapter one ended with humanity, it's kind of picking up with this different perspective, this different understanding of saying, how do we now understand that God formed us out of the dust, breathed his life into us, gave us suitable helpers, and continued us on this path, giving us everything we had to eat, everything we had to hold on to, and now we can see the story of what it means to progress on from here, to start to tame the wilderness, to start to subdue it, to start to bring it back into this place of working through and, and continue to create and continue to mold and continuing to shape was always a part of God's plan. Not for us to sit idly by in paradise with our feet kicked up and just enjoy life. That was not why God created. God created us in His image and His likeness. If I showed you a picture of the Mona Lisa right now, what's the name that's going to come to your mind? There we go. Leonardo da Vinci, right? If I put a statue of David, this D statue of David, what name's going to come to mind? You didn't know it was an art history class, I'm sorry. Michelangelo, right? It was made in the Sistine Chapel, if I do that with the creation fingers, right? Michelangelo? <laughs> If I put a picture, any picture that Picasso painted up there, we're all going to go, oh yeah, it's Picasso, right? Because I still don't know why that guy made so much money, right? If I talk about these artists and what they've created, this beauty that has lasted throughout time, we remember names that are associated with big, important masterpieces that have been deemed so. And people talk about the artists because of the creation they have left behind. God has put his fingerprints on everything we see, everything we experience. When we go on a beautiful hike and walk and see trees and see the wind blowing and see the sun shining, this weekend has been beautiful. When we walk outdoors, the earth declares his glory, right? And we are created in his image to declare his glory. God, this perfect, just amazing God has formed and crafted and taken chaos and nothingness and seen it not as something worthy of just destruction and being left alone. He sees potential and what could be, and he creates out of it. And he forms this beautiful existence that we know, and then he places us, and chapter 2 is this reminder, it begins with this beautiful formation of man Because it has to begin with us from here. What God is doing to declare His glory, yes, the earth will declare His glory, but His desire and His plan is to continue to let creation unfold, to let humanity continue to partner with Him in bringing about restoration, order from the chaos. That in the midst of things that are without life, that are caught up in the darkness, that are lost in the darkness, we see the same imagery in John, right? John talks about the light and the dark. John talks about life and death. He talks about being born again. John has this imagery of life being poured into the world, the earth being created by the Lagos, which is Jesus, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus coming into the world continues to bring life and restoration and redemption, and that Jesus' ministry and teaching that continues to work through us helps to continue bring order to the chaos. And so today we start this journey by saying creation is God's work. That God, no matter how, no matter what the details say about how he formed and made this place he did. And at the center of all of this, he placed us. His creation made in His image with the job and purpose to continue working, to subdue, to have rule over. Now, we've messed that up, and we'll get into that. So to the point where restoration and more redemption was required, right? But that ultimately was fulfilled in a way that now we are supposed to come alongside as co-heirs of a kingdom and continue to do the work of establishing a kingdom here. To continue to bring order and restoration and redemption to the chaos that exists around us. Many of us look at the world that is in utter chaos and darkness and we go, God, just get us out of here so we can go back to paradise. All of scripture carries this imagery of paradise throughout it and ultimately culminates in paradise language. Okay? That is part of the plan. but. Was the heart to create all of this and to let it go and to let it go and to let it go so that we can sit here miserable and go, God, the darkness is still here. God, the chaos is still here. Why won't you just come take me back to the garden? You see, we lost sight of why we were in the garden to begin with. And we did the things that God told us not to do. We took from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves, saying, I'm going to decide for myself what's right and wrong, and I'm going to lean into this and lean on my own understanding, despite God saying, Not yet. That's not yours. Don't touch it. He was trying to help us grow, trying to help us gain life so that we could be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over and subdue to continue taming the wilderness and the wild and continue to bring order to the chaos, to be partners with him in that effort. That's why he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When the fall happens, he comes back into the garden for his walk and his time with them, and he's like, where are you at? You're hiding from me. This creation story is to remind us That we're here for a purpose and we're ultimately God's fulfilling, seeing God's purpose fulfilled all throughout Scripture, and that we are still actively a part of it, not sitting back to wait for the day when everything will just be magically made better by Him, but leaning into what He has called us to be people who make disciples, people who love as He has loved, people who surrender and sacrifice in the way He has surrendered and sacrificed, people who create and come up with ideas to make better what is broken and chaotic because we were created to be like Him, creators. And we'll get into that more next week, but I just start in this place of excitement because God is taking the chaos of this world and trying to restore it, trying to continue to work this masterpiece of something better and has invited us to be a part of it. The trick is sometimes we settle for just soaking in the to-home. The chaos And the depths, and we let ourselves be consumed by the news, we let ourselves be consumed by bad news, and we let ourselves sulk in the ugh of this is miserable. And sometimes I feel like we are those plants that have been buried underwater in a pool and are suffocating, We've lost our joy, we've lost our hope, we've lost sight of what we're supposed to be because we just feel hopeless in the midst of everything that we just let sit on us. And we forget to open this and continue to consume from the Word and continue to be filled and hungry for God's Word and His truth and His story and His purpose for our lives so that we can be a part of something better. We don't look for the streams of living water that come from relationship with Him. We don't stay plugged in and abide in the source, like John talks about. Abide in me. Let my word abide in you. Be plugged into the life-giving waters. Remember how chapter one or chapter two began, the, the first narrative account ended like this, right? Go ahead and throw that last passage up there, Ellie, I think. Yep. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This day was set aside as holy, and it was taught to the Israelite people to keep it holy, to honor it. For six days you shall work, invest, pour into Bring order out of the chaos. Continue to lean into His Word and seek Him with all of our heart. Do the work He's called us to, to make disciples, to go into all nations, to do the things we've been called to do. But we're supposed to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because life-giving rest is still important. God has this amazing rhythm. Six days He works, one day He rests. And He calls us to be the same because we were created in His image to work and function like Him, to pour into this world, to give it everything we have, and to remember, never to forget, to come back to the life-giving waters and rest in Him. And by being who He has called us to be in this creation story, we have to remember that this beautiful, continued work of restoration and redemption and everything that's going to culminate and lead up through and into Jesus— begins and starts with us gaining a rhythm of pouring out of ourselves, coming back to rest, and engaging with what He's called us to be, created in His image and likeness. And we cannot become more like Him every day if we sit down and say, eh, I know I should be reading 15 minutes today to keep up with that thing Nick wants us to do, but I'm kind of tired today. I don't feel like it. That's where we settle, to live in the home the depths of the salty, just nothingness that will consume us and let us get bogged down into something else rather than staying plugged into those rivers of life that flow from God, that flow from His creation and give us life. And so this morning, I just want us to bow our heads for just a moment. And I simply want us to ask this question. I, I think that for most of us in this room, creation is not something that we wrestle with. Like, it's not something that we have doubts about. We all have been told for so long that God created the heavens and the earth. And for us, many of us, that's, that's the nicety of the story that we just let be the kids' story that we have held on to since we were little. But the bigger question is, God, why would you create us in the first place? Why would you put us here to do these things? Why would you paint this picture of a story that kind of begins with your relationship with us? What is it you are trying to do through this relationship with us? And do I seek my purpose in you, or am I content to kick back and wait for a day that is better in paradise? Because, Father, I believe that you have work for us to do. And so, Father, I just pray right now for your people as we sit in the silence and wrestle with you, I pray that you would help us to seek your face and be honest with ourselves. Are we seeking you and trying to be plugged into the rivers of life? Seeking rest and restoration in you? Or are we just bogged down with the chaos of this world and consumed by it? Help us to wrestle with our purpose and what it is we've called to actually be in this world. Father, I love you, and I, I, my heart's desire is to never be content to sit back and wait for you to do something, but to always be seeking what it is that you want me to be participating in. Father, when you told the Israelites to march around Jericho... You already told them you had delivered the city into their hands, but this is what they were to do. Father, I know you have delivered us, and you've provided a way for us and life for us. But Father, you have still called us to participate and do something. And so, Father, I just simply pray today that we would listen and seek you, that we would take seriously this call to engage in your word, that whatever it is you have to speak to us over the course of the next year, that you would pour into our hearts and pour into our lives and help us to get excited about this, not just feel like it's something we got to do because that's what we're doing at church. Father, I pray that you would help us to fall in love with your word, to be hungry for your word, to want to devour and consume and dive into your word so that we might know You through Your Spirit, that breath of life that You are still breathing into us every day. Father, we love You. We trust You. In the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.